If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the New Testament book of Luke, Gospel of Luke. We're returning again this morning to a study in Luke's Gospel. If you're new with us, a Gospel is one of these four New Testament books that are eyewitness testimony explaining to those that were not there who Jesus is, what he came to do, and of the salvation that can be found in him. As Jesus began his ministry, Luke records for us in Luke chapter 4 that he stood up and read from the prophet Isaiah. This prophecy, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus then says to the people in that synagogue, this Prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the long-anticipated Messiah. I am the one who has come. God become man. The Lord's Messiah. To proclaim liberty to captives in the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This morning we see that this verse in Isaiah points to the central theme of our passage today. Freedom. We live in a world that talks about freedom all the time. We value freedom, perhaps more than anything else. And yet while freedom is desired, even demanded by so many of us, it has perhaps never in human history been more misunderstood than it is today. How do people define freedom? What is it believed to be? I'll do what I want, doing whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. It is nothing less than total autonomy, having every desire fulfilled, whatever that desire is. The 19th century Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, you may know him from his classic work, Crime and Punishment, has a lesser known novel called The Gambler. In this short novel, the main character, Alexei, finds what he calls freedom and feelings of being utterly alive at the gambling table. But throughout the novel, you'll see, as the author puts it with great irony, not only is the man in debt to his creditors, he is, in fact, not free at all. He's a slave to his gambling addiction. Is getting what I want true freedom? Well, the Bible says, no. This so-called freedom that we have been considering, the Bible calls it slavery, bondage. Bondage to our own sinful desires. As Jesus puts it in John 8, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. But bondage to another king. Satan, the ruler of this age. But Jesus has come to free those who are in bondage. He promises in John 8, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And it is this that we consider in our passage this morning. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. If you're taking notes, our central theme is this. 
Jesus brings true freedom to those in bondage. Jesus brings true freedom to those in bondage. We won't have points this morning, but as we walk through the passage, we'll be looking at the four characters in relation to this main theme. So we'll begin with the demons, and we'll be looking at Christ, who is the king, and then we'll look at the people or the crowd, and then we'll consider this demon-possessed man. The demons, the king, the people, and the demon-possessed man. These four characters. I pray that this morning, that as we consider this passage, that we would find in Christ true and lasting freedom. Let's begin by reading the passage. Follow along with me as I read Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. This is God's word. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's look at our first group of characters this morning, the the demons in our text that these demons, these demons that are possessing this man, who have so possessed him that when the man speaks, they speak. Our passage begins with this interaction between Jesus and these demons. As we begin, who are Satan and demons? Who are they? Well, Scripture is clear. These are spirit beings created by God to be his angels and his heavenly servants. But they, rather than keeping their position, they fell. They rebelled against God. Second Peter and Jude talks about how they fell from their original position. How does the Bible describe Satan? 
Well, the Bible describes him as the ruler of this world, John 12, 31. Or as the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, which includes fallen humanity. He's the the God of fallen humanity. He is Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. Or Matthew 12, the prince of demons. Which means that he rules all demons. So when we see demons acting in this passage, they are following orders. They're following their prince and their general, Satan. Two of Satan's most common names in the Bible are, well, Satan, which is used more than any other, about 50 times, which means the adversary, which is describing his relationship with God and with God's people. He is an adversary. The second most used name is the devil, which means an accuser or slanderer. There are many other titles that are used. The evil one. He's described as Abaddon, the destroyer in Revelation. He's pictured as a great red dragon also in Revelation and called that ancient serpent in Revelation 12. He's described by Peter as a roaring lion roaming the earth seeking someone to devour. And he was that ancient serpent as Revelation says it, who was in the garden, who tempted the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. Which is why Jesus calls him a liar and the father of lies. Well, this is who Satan and his demons are. Well, then what is their purpose? What do they intend? What is their goal? Well, put simply, Satan and his demons are in bitter opposition to God and in opposition to all that is good. They are the anti-God. And their goal? Corruption of everything that is good. Domination. And ultimately, destruction of everyone and everything. It is their goal to destroy God's good creation, to corrupt His people, and to bring with them down as many as possible. We see in our passage that these demons know that their end is ultimate Rejection, ultimate destruction at the hands of Christ, the King. And yet they know that their time is not yet. And so in the meantime, they are ruiners. They delight in ruining and corrupting God's creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, we are not unaware of Satan's schemes, his strategies. We've often heard the well-known adage, misery loves company. Misery loves company. Many of us could probably tell stories of someone who's been caught and then spends a lot of time taking as many others down with them. Right? This is what Satan is doing. He is in his misery taking as many possible down with him to destruction and death. He doesn't want to go down without a fight. Now consider with me this demon-possessed man in this passage. Look at how he is described. And notice from this passage what Satan intends for you and for me. He is literally dominated by these demons, controlled to do their will. He's so controlled by these demons that when he speaks, it is the demons speaking through him. And when he acts... He is simply doing the demon's will. He's dominated. You see also that he's naked. 
seems unaware of the shame of his nakedness, acting almost like an animal or some kind of brute beast. He's also being driven by them into the wilderness. He's cut off from society, separated from his family and his friends and from fellowship. You see as well that he makes his home among the dead, among the tombs. This is his reality. He is literally living among the dead. You also see that he's bound by chains that have been broken, apparently by men who sought to control him, maybe sneaking up on him when he slept and putting chains on him to keep him from doing destructive things. But even as the demons empowered him to break these physical chains, the reality is he was bound by much stronger spiritual bonds, bonds that were even more unbreakable and impenetrable until Jesus arrives. This picture of the demon-possessed man is what Satan and his demons desire for us. This picture, this description of this man, that would be us if not for the grace of God. This would be our fate if they could have their way with us. Make no mistake, in his deception, Satan woos us towards sin, but his intent is this, total domination and death. uh, Satan is pride incarnate. And while he lures us with the promise of freedom, he refuses to be dominated or ruled by any other, especially God. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, this morning to see clearly what Satan intends for you and use this as a tool in your fight with sin. I think I've mentioned in the past that I had a very short career as a telemarketer in college. I was selling, I came to find out, credit cards and credit card programs. But as I began getting on phone calls and having conversations with people and hearing how they were maxed out on credit cards and debt, my heart broke for these people. Here I was trying to convince them an opportunity with another credit card to get into further debt. I didn't last long in the job. I felt like a con artist. But you know, Satan is the worst kind of door-to-door salesman. Instead of a product, he sells only deception. When it comes to freedom, Satan always overpromises and underdelivers. He promises freedom, but 100% of the time, he is delivering bondage, slavery, and death to his clients. He's the worst kind of snake oil salesman. So how should we approach Satan and demons? How should we relate to them? C.S. Lewis's quote from his helpful allegory, the Screwtape Letters, is really helpful, this quote from his introduction. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. See what Lewis is saying. We can fall into two extremes. Disbelieving in their existence or discounting their existence. Or on the other hand, feeling an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So for those of us who are prone to discount their existence, let me encourage you to allow this passage to remind you Satan and his demons exist. Whether you see them, hear them, or not, they exist. We must realize that we are, as Ephesians 6 puts it, 
in a very real war with them, whether we realize it or not. Now, I've heard many ask the question, if Satan and demons exist, and if we see demon possession in the Bible, why don't we see that more often in our day and age here in America today? It's a good question. But remember this, Satan is a a genius strategist. And in his strategies, he is going to approach different battles on different terrains in different ways, just as a general would. There are people today demon-possessed in different places in this world. Some even in America, believe it or not, whether you've met them or not. But as Lewis also puts in his introduction to Screwtape Letters, Satan doesn't care how he defeats us. He's just as excited about a witch doctor as he is about an atheist because the goal for him is to keep us away from God. And whether he can use the fear of him through demon possession or whether he can use a philosophy and convince us that even God doesn't exist, as long as he wins, he does not care how. So for those of us who are prone to discount their existence because we don't see angels or demons, remember that they exist. And remember, as Ephesians 6 puts it, we are in a war. Ephesians 6.10 and following, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. You see, we are in a war, and we need to put our armor on. Let me encourage you, if this is you, one who's prone to discount the existence of Satan and demons, to meditate on Ephesians 6, even this afternoon, and consider the, the armor of God that we must be putting on, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness. And realize that you may be in a battle and be unaware of it. And if you are unaware that you're in a battle, you're losing. But also from Ephesians 6, not only do we put on the armor to protect us, we must also, as the Apostle Paul tells us, wield our weapons. We've been given two weapons in this battle. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, in this battle to be sharpening your sword. We talked last Sunday night about daily Bible study and reading for Christians and how we need such daily food intake to be nourished and to grow. Another way to think about our daily Bible reading is sword sharpening. We are literally needing to sharpen our sword and prepare ourselves for the battle, the battle that we face each day of Satan's temptations and lies. Not only that, but we need to see prayer as a vital weapon in our fight with Satan and with sin. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to be prayer warriors. To see prayer not as just some duty or something on your checklist to do, but as part of your battle for yourself, for your family, for your fellow church members. Let me encourage you to wield these weapons in the fight. Now, there may be others who are prone to an unhealthy interest in Satan and his demons. We'll see this 
a lot, even for Christians, getting fascinated and interested in demons. There is, in many churches, a whole dominion theology where Christians get so caught up in thinking about demons and Satan's schemes that they begin to see demons as the source of everything evil in our lives. Discounting how great our own indwelling sin is and getting our eyes off of Christ and onto Satan and demons. This kind of dominion theology or deliverance ministries sees a demon of any kind of sin struggle. There must be a demon behind it. And they get people caught up in the fear of Satan's footholds in your life or perhaps generational curses. And they encourage using incantations to try to free you from such dominion. And while they on the one hand realize that Satan and his demons are real, their reaction to him is wrong. Dominion theology poses a risk to us because on the one hand it can lead us to downplay the severity of our own sin. Let me encourage you to read Romans 6, 7, and 8. Remind yourself of how strong our own indwelling sin is. Even though demons are real and their temptation is strong and we are in a battle, so much of the problems in our lives come down to our own indwelling sin. And what we need to do is focus on fighting and putting that sin to death by using God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. But it can also cause us to overfocus on demons and curses instead of focusing on Christ. So let me encourage you, Christians, realize the greatness of your own sin. Realize that you are in a battle, not only with Satan and demons, but with your own sin. And you are called, Romans 8, by the power of the Spirit to put sin to death, to continue to fight and to uproot sin in your hearts. We encourage you to do this on your own, but also to bring others with you in this fight, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's one of the reasons to join a church, because you realize how great your sin is and that you cannot win this battle alone. But secondly, let me encourage you Christians to focus on Christ, to focus on His finished work, to focus on His goodness, and utilize His power for you. The Bible promises that the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you and will succeed in conquering sin and the dominion of Satan. Let me encourage you as we consider the domination that we see of these demons and of Satan in this passage. Let me just make a quick applicational note for those who have authority in this world. Whether you're a husband whether you're a father or a mother, whether you're an employer or any kind of authority, to realize that good authority is not exercised like this, by dominating or oppressing others. Good authority demonstrates itself in Christ-honoring and Christ-like humility and a desire for the good of those under our care, those that have been entrusted to us. Good authority has its eye towards doing good in the lives of others. Resist the urge to dominate, to keep others under your thumb, and imitate your Savior who was gentle and loving as He exercised authority. Do not imitate Satan. That's the first characters here, the demons. Let's look secondly at the king, the king who has come. 
In our passage, Jesus is seen in relation to these demons and through their interactions, both in their words, their conversation, and in their actions, we learn something about who Jesus is and what He has come to do. First, we see who Jesus is. According to this passage, we see that He's the judge of all the earth and the judge of all creation. These demons come to Him frightened. They come to Him kind of cowering before Him. Acknowledging his authority and acknowledging their future destruction and begging him to have mercy on them and to be patient with them and to not condemn them before their time. You see who Jesus is. He is the king. He is the judge. And he is good. And he will one day judge justly. And in his goodness, he will condemn all wrongdoers. There are ideas There are ideas going around today that deny that we as human beings are sinful, that we are bad at all on the inside. Well, hear this. People articulating a belief that all of us are mostly good, at least good on the inside, even if we've been hurt or corrupted on the outside. But do you see here that Jesus is right to punish all wrongdoers. Do you see that there actually are wrongdoers? There are rebels. And it's not only Satan and his demons, but those that have been deceived by him and have joined his side. These demons confess that he is the one with the authority to destroy them, to punish them for their terrible crimes against God. The Bible is clear that not only are Satan and his realm of fallen angels sinful, No, we, from our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, we too are sinners. We too have rebelled against God and have joined His side. We also see from this passage not only who Jesus is as the judge, but we also see what Jesus has come to do in His miracle of freeing this demon-possessed man from these demons. He shows what He has come to do to give freedom to the oppressed, freedom to the enslaved, and come to punish the oppressors. Oppression is rebellion against God, and make no mistake, those who oppress others, whether by schemes or acts of aggression, Jesus stands ready and right to punish them. This should give us hope, because we see evil and oppression in this world. It should give us hope that such evil and oppression will not last ultimately. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and yet God made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And how did He do this? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the gospel message that all of us are actually rebels deserving punishment. That all of us deserve to be destroyed by God's good wrath against wrongdoing. And yet, the good news is that Jesus came, God become man, living a perfect life that we could not live. And in His death on the cross, canceling our record of sin, and giving to those that repent of their sins and trust in Christ His record of perfection. And in a great exchange. And he did not stay dead. He 
was raised from the grave, showing his power over sin and death. And as Paul goes on to say in verse 15 of Colossians 2, in his death and resurrection, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, which is a reference to Satan and his demons, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let me encourage you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that Christ has come. Even though you and I are rebels and deserve punishment, He has come to rescue us from the oppression of our sin and of Satan and to free us, to offer us true freedom, the freedom that can only be found in a right relationship with our good and loving God. There is sin and oppression in the world, and Jesus has come to free the oppressed and punish all evildoers. He's come to fulfill the promise made in Genesis chapter 3 when God promised that He would put enmity between the snake, the serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And then He promised that He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heels. Jesus is the Satan crusher, the one who has come to break His oppression and rule. If you're here and you are a Christian, let me encourage you in terms of application to remember that Christ's power does not end with our original salvation. He's not only freed us from the penalty of sin, but He's still at work in us to help us conquer our present and indwelling sin. Be encouraged. This war against sin will not always last. It has an expiration date. And in the meantime, as we struggle with sin and temptation... Remember that we're in the process of continued sanctification of being made more and more with each passing day like our Savior, Jesus. Encourage each other. Be patient with one another as we wrestle against sin and have hope that this sin and its power and Satan's domination will not last. Christ has dealt its death blow. Let's look thirdly at the people here. We have the demons, we have the king, and now we have the people. We are introduced to the townspeople. uh, These demons are cast out. They beg to be uh, given leave to enter the pigs. They enter the pigs. In an incredibly short amount of time, they destroy the pigs. It's a fascinating fact. I wonder what the point is. Why would you possess pigs to instantly destroy them? Well, this is what Satan and his demons love to do. They love to destroy. They seem satisfied by destroying these pigs in an instant and then moving on. You wonder what the point of it is. How do the townspeople react to this news as people run to tell them what happened? That their pigs have been drowned? Their unclean food has been drowned and destroyed? Look at verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. What did these townspeople do when they heard this news? Well, it says that they were afraid. You remember the, the passage just before this? 
Jesus showing that He is the Creator God in the boat who calms the storm, and His own disciples are afraid. Here, when these people see what Jesus is able to do, they are afraid. And what do they choose? Well, they choose against Christ. They beg Him to leave them. Now why? Why would they do this? Are they more concerned about the pigs than the miracle? Are they choosing their own material possessions or their own unclean food over Christ? Or are they afraid of Jesus' power and what it means for them and their sin? Are they realizing that they stand in the presence of someone who is truly good and holy? Or both? We don't know exactly why they wanted him to leave or what they gained by Jesus leaving. Either way, the crowd believes they would be better off without Jesus. While the people are not possessed by demons like this man would was, they are still under his delusion. While they may not be possessed as the demon-possessed man was, they are still very much deceived. They're convinced that freedom from Jesus is the better option. They don't realize that they are in the presence of the one, the only one, who can truly set them free. And this is heartbreaking. Our hearts should break at this scene. Their only hope for salvation was standing in front of them and was getting into the boat. And they asked him to leave. But in God's kindness, he leaves behind a witness. A witness of Christ's power to save the demon-possessed man. All hope is not completely lost. But Pastor Mark Dever writes, when it comes to battling sin in our lives, the difference between Christians and non-Christians is not that non-Christians sin, whereas Christians don't. The difference is found in which side we take in the battle. Christians take God's side against sin, whereas non-Christians take their own sin side against God. Let me say that again. The difference is found in which side we take in the battle. Christians take God's side against sin, whereas non-Christians take sin's side against God. In other words, a Christian will sin, but then he will turn to God and His Word and say, help me fight against sin. A non-Christian, even if he recognizes his sin, effectively responds, I want my sin more than God. That's what these townspeople are doing. They're choosing their sin against God. And they're choosing their bondage against the only one who can set them free. You know, we can continue to do this as, even as believers. Tempted to believe that the freedom Jesus wants for us is to be happy and comfortable all the time. That He wants us to have lives free of risk or difficulty. That's not what the Bible teaches There is no freedom apart from Christ and what He desires for us. And the freedom that He offers us is not some temporary freedom in this world, but eternal freedom. Let me encourage you, Christians, to embrace Christ, whatever it might cost you in this world, and to find in Him and in all eternity true freedom. Freedom from your sin and from Satan's domination. And freedom to have true joy in Christ's presence. Forever. Let's look lastly, fourthly, at our fourth character, this demon-possessed man. We finally get to see him, no longer dominated by these demons at the end of our passage. Look with me at the last two verses. 
the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, that is, with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Praise God for this deliverance. This man has been freed from Satan's oppression. And what does he want when he's finally freed? Nothing more than to be with Jesus. He's not only been freed from the demon's painful possession, he's been converted. He's been given new life. He's been regenerated and made new, justified. And yet the man's first prayer to Jesus is answered. No. You see his prayer there that he might be with him. And Jesus answers, no. It's fascinating. Now why is that? Is it that the prayer is a bad one? Is it wrong for him to want to be with Jesus? Clearly not. That's what he's called the 12 disciples to do, that they would be with him. Is it that the prayer was given with bad motivation? No, it appears that he desires something good, something eternally good. For to be with our Savior Jesus is the hope and the eternal joy of all of God's people. So why does Jesus answer no to his simple request to be with him? Because he has a job for him to do. He wants this newly freed and newly saved man to be his witness to the garrison. He wants to leave behind someone who's experienced salvation to preach the gospel and continue to preach it among these people who initially respond by rejecting Jesus. And how does this man respond to this answer of no to his first prayer? Does he get frustrated? Does he become jealous of the disciples? Does he quit on Jesus? Fine, I quit. No. He obeys. I love this man. And I love this response. He obeys. Even when the answer to his request is no. I wonder, what are the good things that you desire right now? There are things in the Bible that God says are good. That in his wisdom, he withholds from his people. Because he has something better in mind for us, something to teach us or ways to use us in the circumstances that he places us in. Are you right now in a situation in which your loving Heavenly Father has said no to good things that you're asking of him? Remember that if he is saying no, there is something better that he has in mind for you. John Piper has said God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of like three of them God in his wisdom Christ in his infinite wisdom knows what is best for you and many times what is best for you is not what you would choose for yourself but he has good planned for you trust him my friend Jeff in Washington DC about nine Or 10 years ago, uh, a wonderful friend that I discipled for a period of months, one night was arrested for no reason. Jeff uh, is an African-American man. And the police thought that he was someone else. He had the same name as someone else that had a warrant out for his arrest. So he was thrown in prison overnight unjustly. He hadn't done anything wrong. I wonder how you would respond to a situation like this. 
What I love is that Jeff spent the night until they had figured out that they had arrested the wrong man, witnessing to the people around him, the police officers in the car on the way there, witnessing to the people in the cell with him, witnessing to the people in the police station. He embraced this as an opportunity to talk about Christ, where God had him. He spent the night sharing the gospel. And the next day, he rejoiced and was excited to tell others to tell me, to tell other church members of how he had the opportunity to take the gospel into prison and to preach the gospel to people that he never thought he would meet. Now, Jeff is clearly a better man than than I am because I know I would not respond that way. I'd be getting some lawyer on the phone threatening people in their jobs. But I wonder how, how we focus on the circumstances that God puts us in. Do we focus on our frustrations, on the inconveniences, on the discouragements, or do we rejoice with gladness like my brother Jeff and the Apostle Paul that we have the privilege of taking the gospel, of being ambassadors of the gospel and of adorning the gospel in these situations in ways that we never could have dreamed or imagined. The Apostle Paul was put in prison. He was literally chained and bound. And in his letters to God's people, he reminds them Spiritual bondage is way worse than the physical bondage that he was experiencing in a prison cell. He knew that prison cell was temporary, that this suffering was momentary and light affliction, even if it's incredibly painful and life-altering. And Paul says that even though he was bound, the Word of God is not bound. God is at work, and he loved to tell others about how while he's been put in prison, God has used this for the gospel to spread even to Caesar's household, all among Caesar's guard. And they all know that he's in chains for Christ. Christian, you have been set free from ultimate spiritual bondage if you know Christ. And that freedom transcends any kind of physical bondage in this world that you may experience. Any kind of difficulty or painful physical circumstances. Let me encourage you to allow your freedom in Christ to fuel your hope in life and death and to help you to redeem these situations you find yourself for the sake of being an ambassador for Christ. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to allow this freedom that you have in Christ, that He's won for you, to be the main attraction, the thing that you live for, not some little sideshow happening off off here. You are free in Christ. And if He has freed you, you are free indeed. No one and nothing can ever hold you again. If we, as well, have been freed in Christ, we can now offer freedom in Christ to others too. We hold the keys that free others from their bondage to sin in this world. Bondage to themselves and even to demonic powers. Through the Gospel message, we have a life-giving bondage-breaking power. So preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to others and see others around you. Not ultimately as people that are inconveniencing you or even hurting you, but as people who are in bondage to a, a much worse dominator, Satan and sin. And unless we offer such freedom To others, the freedom that can only be found in Christ, they will be ultimately lost. 
And unless we too in our discipling relationships with one another offer Christ, we are not offering true hope. It can be tempting for us to be offering some smaller or temporary freedoms rather than ultimate freedom, a freedom that can only come through Christ. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to live in this freedom and to offer such freedom to others. We must conclude. Remember our central theme from this passage, Jesus brings true freedom to those that are in bondage. Jesus and Jesus alone, the King of kings, has come to earth to conquer all other gods and other lords. Remember, He and He alone is the one who will win the final battle. And we must choose His side. Not just because His is the ultimate winning side, though it is, but because it is only in Christ that true joy can be found. There is no joy or happiness apart from Christ but only with Him. And that's what He offers us forever. I finished reading again the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis about two weeks ago. In the final book, the final picture, this picture of heaven, has Aslan's people running into God and going into the mountains that are a picture of the glory of God. And as they run and advance into the mountains, they keep crying to one another farther up and further in. Farther up and further in. There is joy and freedom in knowing God. And our eternal existence in heaven is going to be the joy and the freedom of getting to know God more and more with each passing day. And the more we get to know Him, the more we realize we will never come to the end of Him. And this is true freedom and joy. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to find your joy not anywhere else, and to find your freedom not in anything else, but only in Christ, the King of kings. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that in Christ we can be free indeed, free from the bondage to sin and to death, free from the bondage to Satan and his demons. Thank you that he has come to free those that have been oppressed. And though we deserve to be numbered among the transgressors and numbered with the rebellious, that there is hope for sinners like us to be set free, to be pardoned, and to have with Christ and with you forever true and lasting joy. We pray that the King of Kings would be our joy today and every day until the day when we see him face to face. Pray that we would be busy about the mission that he's called us to, to be his ambassadors of freedom to a world in bondage. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.